The U.S. Agency for International Development operates throughout the world, but all its work is local. It's been on a drive to concentrate more contract and grant dollars to organizations in the countries where a project is occurring. At USAID, they call that localization. For a progress report, Federal News Network's Tom Temin spoke to the agency's senior advisor for localization, Sarah Rose. Why don't you tell us a little bit in more detail what you mean by localization and why is that really important to the, to the dollars and to the mission? Absolutely. So first of all, just as a bit of background, USAID is really the world's premier international development agency. It's a catalytic actor. It drives development results around the world. Our work also advances U.S. national security, our economic prosperity, demonstrates American generosity, and really promotes a path to recipients' self-reliance and resilience as well. But the point that you mentioned is really important to how we work. When we talk about localization, we're talking about how USAID implements its mission, its mandate, and its model. And so what, what that means is that USAID has really reaffirmed a commitment to putting local actors at the center of our work and strengthening local systems by shifting our funding and our decision-making power to the people, the organizations, and the institutions that are really driving the change in their own countries and communities. So this is important because we know that local leadership over development and humanitarian goals, as well as programming, is really important for ensuring equity, effectiveness, and sustainability. Just as a little bit of background, back in November of 2021, the head of USAID, Samantha Power, she outlined two targets that USAID is working towards as part of the reaffirmation of our commitment to really advancing locally led development and humanitarian assistance. So one of these targets is to increase our funding to local entities. And we have a goal of channeling at least a quarter of our funds directly to local partners by the end of 2025. And then the second target is really intended to push us to better elevate local voices with a goal that half of our programs, at least half of our programs, will create space for local actors to exercise leadership and decision-making power over things like priority setting, project design, project implementation, and how we define and measure results. And let's maybe make this realistic. Describe a typical project, the actors or organizations that would be involved in carrying it out. And it sounds like at this point, then, they might be from other countries, but they travel to the location on behalf of USAID and do the work and help the local people do the work. Is that basically how it's set up now? That's right, Tom. So basically... The vast majority of USAID's funding goes to organizations, entities, uh, firms, et cetera, that are based internationally. Uh, Many of them are based in the United States, in fact. Many of these organizations have country offices, et cetera. Many of their staff are from that country as well. But the organization itself is based primarily in the United States, um, as well as other international countries as well. And so what we're trying to do is think about how we can shift more of that funding to go directly to those organizations, again, that are leading changes in the countries and communities where they live and work. And the issue, though, I would imagine, is you have to make sure that there are organizations locally that have the capacity to do that work and to do it in a way that complies with U.S. standards for, you know, not taking bribes and other business ethical standards, correct? Absolutely. One of the most important things that we do in our work is thinking about how we can safeguard American taxpayer funding from fraud, waste, abuse, and mismanagement. That is always one of our highest priorities. But we also know that when we meaningfully involve local actors in our work, this can make the development gains more durable. And this is another aspect of safeguarding taxpayer funding. 
But when we're thinking about individual programs, for instance, you know, when we think about increasing the amount of funding that we're providing to re- directly to local organizations, you know, there are ways that we can do this that lower the risk both for the United States as well as for those organizations themselves, because there are plenty of organizations working, operating in their own countries, in their own communities, striving to advance well-being for the people that live in those areas as well. But one of the things that we're doing, too, is, is really thinking about how we can increase our use of pay-for-results mechanisms. So these are important design approaches that can facilitate partnering with organizations that don't have as much experience working with USAID, although it can also be used with larger and more experienced organizations as well. And this model really involves paying upon the achievement of outputs or results that are tied to outcomes. You know, this is as opposed to only reimbursing for costs or inputs. And what this does is that it limits the fiduciary risk for USAID. And it also generally requires less sophisticated uh, financial and operational management capacity of the partner as well. I will note that one of the biggest challenges that we face as an agency is that we have a shortage of contracting and agreement officers here at USAID. In fact, we call this our contracting officer staffing crisis. So if you actually look at the data on this, Last year, USAID's contracting officers handled a workload that was vastly in excess of contracting officers at many other agencies. And I'll look at just the Department of Defense for comparison. Last year at USAID, each contracting officer managed an average of $108 million compared to each contracting officer at DOD managing an average of $11.6 million. And so to scale our localization efforts, what we are really looking at is different ways that we can expand our contracting and agreement officer workforce. And so what we're doing is taking a proactive approach to thinking about how we can hire new contracting officers and agreement officers, and also creating incentives to be able to retain our current workforce. We are speaking with Sarah Rose. She is Senior Advisor for Localization within the Office of the Administrator at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Would it be accurate to say that suppose you're building water treatment capacity in a particular country, and instead of using you know an engineering firm from the United States that sends people there or has people there, you use an indigenous firm, maybe the dollars go a little further in the sense that the capacity of that industrial base in that country to do water treatment also increases at the same time that you get the water treatment plant. That's exactly the idea behind localization. I mean, the idea is really to think about how can we strengthen local systems? How can we strengthen the systems of actors that are operating in a particular country, in a particular community, to be able to own, manage, and sustain you know, this work, these objectives that, that we all share as well. So, Got it. And what about the variations in just, again, indigenous, for lack of a better word, capacity? It must vary a lot according to the zones that the USAID operates in, Africa, some of the Asian countries, some of the lower European countries and so on. I mean, they're not all equal, are they? What we find is that there are everywhere in the world, there are organizations and individuals that are very high capacity. In fact, you know, one of the things that we have done recently is we, uh, it was just uh, last year, we released USAID's first ever local capacity strengthening policy, which really sets forward the set of principles about how we think about capacity and how we think about capacity strengthening as part of our work, because it is a key part of what USAID does. But what that recognizes and what we recognize is, is that capacity exists everywhere. What kind of capacity, you know, might vary. 
right? And so in some cases, I think the particular question that you are asking is, you know, is there capacity of local organizations to work with USAID directly? You know, USAID has some specific requirements about working, you know, with us as a federal agency, of course, you know, and if, and if an organization hasn't worked with us before, you know, some of those uh, aspects of working with the USAID can in fact be challenging. So there are different kinds of capacities to think about. What we are aiming to do with our localization goals, again, is be able to shift more funding and more decision-making power to those organizations that have a lot of that substantive and technical capacity and have that real deep-rootedness connectivity within their communities that ends up being so important for being able to achieve and sustain those development results. In terms of working with USAID, you know, there are different ways that we can go about either strengthening the capacity of organizations to work with USAID and also being more accessible, thinking about how we can change our own business practices to make it easier for organizations, again, that are less familiar with USAID, that haven't worked with USAID before, whose primary mission and mandate is around those technical and substantive things and not primarily around working with a donor. How can we make it easier for them to partner with us as well? And let's get a progress report. So far, it looks like 10% of the dollars now are localized, and you're headed toward 25%, as you said. When do you expect to hit that goal? Yes, that's a great question. And I wanted to just highlight, too, that that 10% number that, that you highlighted. So just in June, USAID released its first progress report looking at localization. And again, this report looks at our progress towards the two goals that uh, the head of USAID Administrator Power set out back in November of 2021. And that first goal is that a quarter of our funding will go directly to local actors, to local partners by the end of 2025. And there's a second goal as well that I don't want to lose sight of because it's really seen as equally important to how we think about advancing uh, locally-led development and humanitarian response. And that is that at least half of our programs will be locally-led will create space for local actors to exercise decision-making and have agency over things like priority setting, activity design, implementation, and how we define and measure results as well. So what this progress report does, that again, we released it just in June, you can find it on our website. And what that progress report actually shows is, again, as, Tom, as you mentioned, that as of fiscal year 2022, 10% of our funding is going to local partners. That does show that we have a way to go until we reach 25%, our goal, our target. But it also shows that we're really headed in the right direction. If we look just year on year, right, we look just from FY21 to FY22, what we see is an increase of $623 million going to local partners. That's a 66% year on year increase by dollar value in the amount of money going to local partners. If you're looking at the percentage in percentage terms, it's a 38% increase in the percent of funding going to local partners. Most of this funding is obligated through USAID's in-country missions, our, our country offices that are located in the countries where we work. That's not terribly surprising. They're the ones who have the in-country presence. They have the local networks. Uh, the way that they work really is in support of these country-specific programs. But if you just look look just at mission funding and, and these sort of over overseas operating units, you see that 18% of our, our funding is going to local partners there. Interestingly enough, too, there's a lot of sort of you know heterogeneity and, and how this looks around the world and by sector as well. And you know, we see that our missions in Africa in particular are leading the way, and they have already directed nearly 25% of their funding to local partners in fiscal year 2022. And all of this then gets back to the challenge for the agency itself that you mentioned earlier, and that is oversight and management supervisory capacity. 
Absolutely. And so, again, you know, one of the things that's important in terms of thinking about how we advance our localization goals, we're not doing this in a vacuum, right? There's a number of other priorities that we are advancing as an agency that are really complementary to these localization efforts as well. One of these efforts is thinking about how can we step up? How can we right size? How can we elevate? How can we empower our workforce, including our acquisitions and assistance workforce, to be able to have the staff and the people and the skills that we need to be able to work closely with local actors. And again, especially those local actors who may not have as much familiarity with working with USAID, when we can work with them closely together, create an open door, have ongoing conversations, create that relationship of trust, sort of mutual accountability, it sets us all up for success. The other thing that USAID is doing uh, in tandem with localization is a focus on burden reduction, too. How can we streamline some of the administrative burdens that that we face as, as, again, as a federal agency? How can we reduce some of that kind of work so we can spend more time doing some of this substantive and meaningful work, including, but not limited to, expanding our work with local actors. Sarah Rose is Senior Advisor for Localization within the Office of the Administrator at the U.S. Agency for International Development. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. uh, And that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. 
AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative, it's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. 
it's it's needed. uh, And, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.